Hi, and welcome to In Search of Insight, Nootropics Depot's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Erica, and sitting next to me is our product specialist, Emil. Hey, everyone. Today, we are recording the podcast from a little bit of a different space, as you can hear, but we are here with some really exciting stories and information and history behind a new product that we have recently come out with. It's the supercritical CO2 coriander extract, and that is going to be the focus of our podcast for this month, telling you about the beneficial effects of this supplement, uh, why we decided to create this as a solution in addition to capsules, what is supercritical CO2, and a little bit more about the many health benefits and long use of coriander, both as a supplement as well as a food source and a flavor that we're all quite familiar with from lots of different styles of cooking from around the world. So before we get into the body of the podcast, we are going to revisit one of our favorite segments, my personal favorite segments, which is new products, new products that have been released since our last podcast episode. And this month we have a very interesting selection of new products that we've released starting with one that I personally have tried and had quite a fascinating and exciting experience with, and we'll start with this product Vignatex, which Emil is going to tell us a little bit about right now. Yeah, so Vignatex is a really interesting new natrium stack we came out with, and we've been working on it for quite a while, because it took quite a while to actually get the profile of effects exactly where we want it to be. So at the heart, let me actually first explain the name, Vigna Tex. So it's a extract of Vigna radiata, which we know better as mung bean. And specifically, we are extracting isovitexin and vitexin from that. So then if you take the Vigna radiata part of it, so Vigna, and then the last part of isovitexin and vitexin, tex, then you have Vigna Tex. So that's where the name com comes from. And it is a combination, actually, of that mung bean extract with a passionflower extract. The reason why we went with a passionflower extract in it is because passionflower also contains phytexin and isophytexin. And these two flavones are also important for the effects of passionflower. But the real reason we put passionflower in has to do more with the effects of the mung beans very high isophytexin and phytexin content. So, we uh, got it to 10% vitexin and 10% isovitexin in this extract. So it's really high. And both of these compounds act as a monoamine oxidase B inhibitor. Specifically, isovitexin is quite a powerful monoamine oxidase B inhibitor. It is reversible, so this has some benefits with it. But this enzyme, monoamine oxidase B, normally breaks down dopamine and norepinephrine. So if you block the activity of this enzyme, you can have slightly higher dopamine and norepinephrine levels, which will lead to a focus-enhancing, motivation-enhancing, stimulating effect. But in the mung bean extract, it felt slightly unbalanced. So it was very heavy on the stimulation and almost a little bit edgy. So we wanted to look for something that would smooth these rougher edges out a little bit without detracting too much from the effects of isophytexin and vitexin. And perfectly, passionflower contains both of these compounds, so it adds a little bit more there and adds a little bit more of that character. But passionflower is also really well known for its calming activities. 
And when you combine the effects of the mung bean with the slight calming activities of the passion flower, you get a really nice balance of effects. But this was a little bit tricky too because not all passion flower is created equal. There are actually a, a few different species too. So we use Passiflora incarnata in this one. It's a more generic passion flower almost, but we actually went through and beta tested a bunch of different passion flowers to try and get the effects profile we wanted. So we wanted something that wasn't too calming and something that wasn't too energizing because we also found that some passion flower extracts actually aren't very calming at all and they are really stimulating too. So if we use this together with the mung bean, it would have just been too much. So when we combine, when it, it took maybe five or six different passion flower extracts before we got one that really meshed well with the effects we were getting from the mung bean. Then we blended them and we had this really nice balance of effects. So as Erica was saying, you had a pretty interesting experience with it. What was your experience with it? Yes, so I took Vignatex without anything to kind of hmm, go along with it. I took it by itself. I didn't take it in a stack. Um, I took it in the early afternoon, maybe 1 or 2 p.m. And I had some important organizational tasks to get done on that day. And I was also feeling maybe a little bit introspective or a little bit lower in mood in general, just to give you a bit of background for the sort of bio-essaying aspect of this. So I took Vignatex, I would say it took about 30 to 45 minutes to kick in. And when it did kick in, I had an interesting experience because I found it to be quite stimulating, physically stimulating and mentally stimulating as well. I got my tasks done much faster with a lot more focus than I had anticipated. But one thing that I wasn't a huge fan of was the fact that I was so mentally stimulated that I started going down some of these thought rabbit holes, if you will, and it didn't feel particularly um, uplifting in terms of the mood effects. So I was curious, I thought, okay, this is definitely helping me focus, but as far as the mood effects go, I'm not a huge fan because it's making me feel maybe a little bit like edgy, um, I would say. However, this brings us back to the topic of our podcast today. I thought to myself, okay, I'm gonna try this uh, Vignatex and then Emil suggested that I take something else along with it to kind of smooth out that edginess. So I took a dose of the supercritical CO2 coriander extract along with the Vignatex and that was an excellent combination because as soon as the coriander started working, I could feel its effects the mood boost from the coriander and the slight relaxation effects from the coriander combined with the stimulation and the focus enhancement from the Vignatex then made me feel like all of that sort of edgy negative aspects were gone and I could really feel the power and the motivation from Vignatex. Yeah, so what Erica is describing here a little bit too, we, we tried to smooth out the edges a little bit but not too much because I think some people are just a little bit more sensitive to the effects of something like Vignatex and we didn't want to dampen it too much. So you can make some nice combinations with it like with the coriander. And I think part of the reason for this, and Erica has never done like a genetic test, right? I yes. Think. I have and I did one specifically to see if I could look into some of the, the genes that encode 
things like monoamine oxidase B. And what I found out is that my monoamine oxidase B is probably being expressed at a slightly higher level than the average person because I have the genetic encoding for that. So that does mean that my uh, dopamine and norepinephrine is being broken down more quickly than the average person. But then when I add in something like Fignatex, which actually blocks monoamine oxidase B, I have a very profound effect with it. And now that it's been out in the world a little bit, some people seem to have quite profound effects with it. Some people tend to have like slightly normal effects with it, definitely beneficial effects, but not as powerful as maybe Erica and I have experienced. And maybe Erica also has higher monoamine oxidase B levels, which is why we are having such a profound effect with it. So this is interesting to think about. Maybe if you are having really profound effects, then that gives you some clues of what's going on in your brain. Definitely. I'm curious, when you're talking about these monoamine oxidase um, encoding aspects of your, of your genetics, is this the worrier slash warrior conversation that we have from time to time? Yes. Okay. Uh, also, speaking of that, there are some firework warriors outside right now. We are in the Netherlands. It is uh, the day before New Year. So if you are hearing some explosions on the background, it is just fireworks. Um, hopefully it's not too distracting. But yes, this is exactly what's happening. So in people who I think the, let's see, yeah, it's the, the warriors, so people who worry a lot and who maybe shut down a little bit more in a stressful situation, those people tend to have lower levels of monoamine oxidase B. So if in a fight or flight situation, they have a really big ramp up of dopamine and noradrenaline, then monoamine oxidase B is not as ready to break this down. Whereas people like myself with higher monoamine oxidase B levels, when we are in a situation where dopamine and noradrenaline spikes in a fight or flight kind of situation, then we are better equipped with breaking down this excessive amount of dopamine and noradrenaline, which under the face of stress can keep us a little bit more balanced and um, focused on the task at hand. Uh, but during everyday life, we might have some issues with focus and motivation. So there's a trade-off there. So that's interesting with something like Fignatex. You can kind of intervene a little bit and modulate the effects of monoamine oxidase B. So that's one of the main aspects of Vignatex. And one of the main effects that I experienced was certainly an increase in focus and significant stimulation. So for that reason, I think Vignatex would be really useful if I needed to focus, if I needed to boost in that. Um, and that was the specific effect that I was looking for. Definitely. And, and that's really what we designed it for. And we designed it through a lot of bioassaying so that it would have a specific effects profile that we really tuned both through analytical science, through research, but also just trying it out and seeing what it did in ourselves. However, this is not the only thing Vignatex does. And I actually really enjoy Vignatex for a bit of a different reason. And that's because it has a really strong inflammation balancing effect. And it has a great effect on pain management. This is partially because it inhibits the production of cytokines and cytokines add a lot to inflammation and oxidation so we can knock those down with Vignatex. So that's a, a really nice effect and I feel this 
when I take Fignatex, the first half hour, I start getting the first little tingles of my monoamine oxidase B enzyme being knocked down a little bit. I get a little bit more focused, a little bit more energized, and then it starts to ramp up over the next hour. It starts to get stronger. And in that, uh, after that half hour, that, that hour period after that, I also start noticing my muscles feel more relaxed. If I uh, am having some pains and aches, I can feel this smoothing out quite a bit. So I really like Vignatex as a dual purpose thing. It, tackles aspects of pain and it tackles aspects of cognitive function, mood, motivation, uh, memory, focus, things like that. And I find actually that if you are experiencing uh, a lot of pain, inflammation, if you have an injury, it can actually zap your energy levels a bit. It can really decrease your focus because you're constantly just focusing on the, the injury, the, the pain. So having something that both enhances mood, energy, focus, in addition to knocking down some of these pain processing signals that are happening throughout your body, makes for a really versatile supplement if you are experiencing pain, but you still need to perform at a high level. Like if you are studying for exams or you have an important meetings at work or you're close to a deadline, but you're just distracted by the pain, then something like Vignatex can have a really interesting dual effect. This is giving me a great idea. As the representative for those of us who have uteruses and a menstrual cycle, I'm thinking Vignatex would be a perfect uh, supplement to try and experiment with during my menstrual cycle, especially on days where I'm experiencing cramps and the cramps can be distracting. And I often find that my mood shifts and my lack of energy when I um, during certain parts of my menstrual cycle can be so powerful that it does make it hard to focus. So now I'm thinking for the benefits for pain as well as the benefits for focus and stimulation. This could be an interesting product to try as a way to kind of combat those typical um, issues that I experience during certain parts of my menstrual cycle. Yeah, I think that would be a really interesting experiment and I'm, I'm curious to hear your results. Yeah, absolutely. So I think now is a good time to transition into talking about our next new product, which is Mariva Curcumin Capsules. I believe this has been a more recent addition to My Daily Stack. Yes. Yeah, we uh, both added it in recently. Yes. Uh, we wanted to beta test it because we have been using curcumin for a long time. Uh, we've used Long Vita, uh, Cura White, just regular curcumin, but I'd never actually really used Mariva. So in the beta test, we really liked it. And now we are going for just a, a longer, to explain a little bit more how we beta test actually, I think this is maybe an interesting time to cover this. When we start beta testing, it's usually with a little bit more of a limited quantity because it's oftentimes before we even have a production batch of something. So we have a few opportunities to take it and make a decision. Is this something we want to move forward with? And then usually the real long-term uh, experimentation comes with, do we really like the product ourselves? And do we want to integrate it into our daily stack? If yes, then we will pick up a bottle right at release and we start taking it. So that's been the case for Mariva. We picked up a bottle and we've both been taking it. And I'm, 
quite impressed with the effects. I've always been impressed with the effects of uh, curcumin. I think any curcumin uh, will work well for, for me. Uh, but I tend to respond well to curcumins that are a little bit more full spectrum. So for example, our uh, generic, just pure curcumin and a little bit of piperine, while it works well, I feel like I'm missing a little bit of something. And in some of these other products like Long Vida, uh, like Mariva and even Cura White, there is a larger amount of curcuminoids in there. So we tend to really focus on curcumin as the one and only thing in turmeric root. And that's totally not true. There are lots of different curcuminoids. And in Mariva, there is a nice blend of them. And not only is there a nice blend of different curcuminoids in there, these curcuminoids are encapsulated into a phytosome. A phytosome is made up of um, phospholipids like phosphatidylcholine, and you then embed the curcumin uh, molecules all throughout it. This leads to significantly better absorption because curcumin actually has a really hard time absorbing. So with something like the Mariva phytosome, you have much better bioavailability. And I'm pulling this straight from memory. I'm actually not looking at anything. So this might be wrong. We can maybe go back and edit it in post if, if so. But I, th I believe it is 30 times more bioavailable than regular curcumin. And that's wow, really that's impressive. significantly more bioavailable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but seriously, that's, that's incredible. 30 times is uh, remarkable. And Part of why this is so remarkable is definitely there is a huge increase, but if you look at curcumin just in its plain form, the absorption is so low that if you start reaching significant absorption levels, you're already way beyond the baseline of normal curcumin. So that's why this number is also quite large, but it also is why it's important to have a technology like this. So. Yeah, I think Mariva is a really, really interesting product in the curcumin space. Also because there is a high amount of demethoxy curcumin in there. This is actually the most potent curcuminoid, especially for pain processing. And the phytosome technology does a really good job at delivering this to plasma and keeping it there for quite a while. So with that in mind, if you go for Mariva, you're going for one of the most potent curcuminoids and then that most potent curcuminoid is also in a phytosome, so really good bioavailability. And it's not just demethoxy curcumin, it is also curcumin and some of the other curcuminoids to make this nice full spectrum effect. So if I were to compare them, because I'm sure a lot of you want to know some comparisons now, if you were to compare it to Long Vida, I think Long Vida is still my favorite when it comes to the cognitive effects. When I take Long Vida, I can notice a very clear cognitive enhancement effect. But I also notice that when I take Long Vida and I take it alongside a cup of coffee, the, the caffeine content seems a lot more stimulating. And this is also because curcumin has an effect on these monoamine oxidase enzymes. So for some people, this is maybe a very desirable effect. For other people, maybe not so much. I do find that with Mariva, I don't have this as much. So there's not as much of this mood boosting sparkle there um, and maybe caffeine potentiation. But what I do find with Mariva is that it lasts really long 
So that's a, definitely a plus. And it's especially a plus because it has a really nice pain management effect. So if I take, and you can take 500 milligrams of uh, Marifa, that's our standard dosage, but you can actually also bump it up to 1,000 milligrams. That's actually what I took today because I was having a little bit more aches and pains. So this higher dosage and just taking it early in the morning and it's 5 p.m. now, I'm still having the benefits of the Mariva. I think if I were to take Long Vida, the effects on pain at least might have started to level off a little bit now, but it feels like it's still in full swing. And in my experience, the Mariva effects will stay in full swing for a little bit longer. Now, when we compare it to the Cura White, the Cura White is interesting to me too. And I feel like for me personally, Mariva and Cura White are very comparable uh, with, I think Mariva just outlasting the uh, effects profile or the, the time of the effects are longer on Mariva and outlast those of Cura White. But overall, I feel like I have a pretty similar experience with both of them. So I have a little bit of a harder time comparing those two to each other, but definitely Long Vida seems to be a bit more on the nootropic side, not as much on the pain side, and Mariva seems to be more on the pain side and not as much on the nootropic side. But I like both a lot, and they do a really good job at controlling inflammation, oxidation, uh, it's great for your joints, uh, They all stack really well with things like fish oil, but because Mariva is a little bit more catered towards the pain management effects, I think this is a really nice one to incorporate in your pain stack, especially if you want long-lasting effects. This seems to be a bit of a popular or kind of a common thread for today's podcast, uh, the pain management effects of some of these supplements that we're talking about while not the primary effect that we're looking for, it is present in a lot of the products that we've talked about already, Vignatex, um, this Mariva curcumin, as well as our main event for the day, supercritical CO2 coriander extract, which we'll get to a little bit later. But for that reason, they all would go together quite nicely, I think, if you are wanting sort of this peripheral uh, pain support, uh, pain management effect. Yes, and of course, if you want to learn a little bit more about pain, we won't go as in-depth on this podcast because we did a whole podcast about pain not too long ago, so go check that one out. And we'll give you a little bit more of an idea of what each one of these supplements is doing for pain because, for example, Vignatex is hitting the, the cytokines a little bit more, but it's also increasing dopamine levels and dopamine has an effect in the neurological processing of pain. With curcumin, you have a similar, it has this inflammation regulating effects through uh, enzyme systems like cyclooxygenase uh, 1 and 2, specifically cyclooxygenase 2, which you might know as COX-2. So that's um, a really good target for pain. And more so right at where the, the pain processing terminals are. So inflammation makes them more sensitive, oxidation does too. So if you knock these down, then the overall pain neurons are a little bit less sensitive and they will not send out as much signaling. So that's one way in which you can control pain a little bit. And when we get into the supercritical CO2 extract of coriander, it's more of a neurological, things that are happening more in your central nervous system that kind of uh, regulates the pain signals coming in and what our brain 
ascribes meaning to them almost going okay that signal came in out that hurts with something like supercritical co2 extractive coriander you can kind of smooth that out on a more neurological level whereas with things like fignatex and curcumin you can smooth that out more on a peripheral level at the site of injury perhaps very interesting so if any of you are curious about learning a little bit more about these different uh pathways of pain and you're curious about the supplements that we're discussing, you can visit our YouTube channel. Um, you can either search Nootropics Depot just on the YouTube search bar or even in Google and you'll find the In Search of Insight podcast um, specific playlist as well as some other fun and entertaining videos too. And uh, specifically look up uh, our pain podcast because there's lots of fascinating information about the way that we experience, understand, and then process pain. And I find it to be a really useful tool to think about physical pain, but also as a bit of a thought experiment when thinking about, you know, the other kinds of pain that exist in the world. So without getting too philosophical with it. Maybe we can move on to boron because boron actually also doesn't necessarily have uh, an effect on pain processing, but it can maybe prevent you from getting in a painful situation. I'm very curious about this because my only background experience with boron is looking at a periodic table in science class in high school and seeing BO. That's, that's boron, right? Uh, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I know that it exists on the periodic table, but I don't know really what it is, what it does, or why on earth we would be taking a supplement that uh, contains boron. So give me the lowdown. So boron... Uh, it's a mineral and it's sometimes even referred to as an ultra trace mineral. So we get very small amounts of it through our diet. For some reason, it's not classified as a essential mineral like things like zinc, magnesium, uh, those kind of minerals are classified as essential and there's a recommended daily amount that you need to consume. And this is not entirely the case with boron. And it, there is no recommended daily uh, intake level for it, which is kind of strange because it does seem to actually have some really important effects within the body. And my um, earlier comment on it might help prevent some pain is because it helps strengthen your bones. So boron plays a really important role with vitamin D metabolism. And when you consume boron, or actually not when you consume boron, but in general, boron's um, effect within your body is to prevent the breakdown of vitamin D. So basically, if this vitamin D, if you're consuming it or you're getting it through sunlight, then that vitamin D turns into a hormone called 25-hydroxycholocalciferin. So this is kind of the active form of vitamin D3. And boron helps prevent the breakdown of 25-hydroxycholocalciferol. So with this in mind, and because vitamin D is really important for bone health, if boron levels are adequate, bone health is going to be enhanced. When boron levels are low, bone health will suffer a little bit. So with this in mind, boron is a great thing to take for bone health. It's also a great thing to take alongside vitamin D, especially in the winter when 
you're, you can get vitamin D through supplements, but there's a very low chance that you're getting enough vitamin D just through sunlight. And you see this a lot in uh, areas where it's cold and you have much less light exposure during the winters, you see vitamin D levels dropping quite significantly. Oh, like the Netherlands, perhaps. Yes, it is quite dark now. So, for example, here at 4.30 p.m. right now, it gets pretty dark. So, and, and it doesn't get light that early either. I think right around 8.30, maybe 8 or so, it starts to get light. So we have a much shorter window in which we can enjoy sunlight. And especially if it's raining a lot, it's cloudy, you're wearing a lot of clothing, maybe it's cold and the only part of your skin that's exposed is just your face. And you know, for me, I also have a bunch of facial hair. So really it's maybe the skin right above my uh, eyebrows, my nose and my small parts of my cheek that are getting any sunlight uh, during the winter. And that means you're not getting much vitamin D at all. And this is why it's really important to actually just supplement with vitamin D. But then when you take boron uh, together with vitamin D, you can actually enhance the effectiveness of vitamin D and maybe some of the vitamin D that is still being produced naturally. I find this particular uh, mechanism, I guess you'd call it, of boron protecting or preventing the breakdown of vitamin D pretty fascinating because um, I'm not a scientist by trade, but I've learned so much of what I know about supplements and the brain and the body from Emil. And with boron preventing the breakdown of vitamin D, that means that vitamin D is being preserved so that it can be useful in parts of the body where it's able to be absorbed. Is that correct? Yeah. And so what's the location, I guess, where vitamin D is the most useful or perhaps going to have the most beneficial effects? And and why is that? Oh, that's honestly a bit of a tricky question. Vitamin D is very prolific throughout the body. So part of it is in uh, your bones. So vitamin D controls a lot of calcium uh, processing too and bone remineralization and things like that. So in your bones, it's, it's very important. In various organs, it's important. But there's even vitamin D receptors in your brain. And what happens when it's really dark outside and you're not outside a lot and you're not getting a lot of sun? What happens to your mood usually? It goes down. And I would also imagine that a lack of sunlight also affects our circadian rhythms as well. For sure. And vitamin D doesn't necessarily play a role with circadian rhythms as far as I'm aware. But now that you remind me, I do actually have to look into that because I haven't looked into it a lot. And I'm sure there is some effect there. But vitamin D, there is a vitamin D receptor even. Um, they are throughout the brain too. And it seems to have an effect on, I believe, dopamine. And it has some effects on mood. So part of the reason why our mood goes down when we aren't in contact with a lot of sunlight is partially because sunlight helps entrain our circadian rhythm. So that's definitely a part of it. Um, also, just I think sunlight and just seeing the light is, is healthy for us in general. But part of the reason also is because our vitamin D production plummets. And when we correct for this and we enhance vitamin D levels, then we see a reversal of some of these mood issues experienced during the darker months of the year. 
So when you take boron during these darker months of the year, and maybe even you're taking uh, vitamin D alongside it, that can be a very good way to maintain your vitamin D levels. Very when cool. you're not producing it naturally. So that, that's one effect of boron. Uh, but there are some other effects associated with boron that are interesting. Um, one of those is it helps in enhance free testosterone levels. So we've talked about testosterone quite a bit on some other podcasts and it's easy to just generalize testosterone as testosterone, but that's not always the case. There's this thing called SHBG, which is sex hormone binding globulin. And this binds to testosterone. And when SHBG binds to testosterone, you can't really utilize it. But it's a great way to transport it throughout the body. But you can't really use this testosterone that's bound up. So boron actually deactivates SHBG to a certain degree. So that means that when you take boron, it can elevate the amount of free testosterone available. So you can get more out of potentially the increases of testosterone from something like Tangadali or Sistanch. So you're unleashing the testosterone. Absolutely. And yeah. letting, letting it have its fully powerful effects throughout the body. Yes. Okay. So it, it's very popular with uh, bodybuilders and athletes for that reason. That's part of the reason why we actually released it too, because a lot of people asked about it on Reddit and we listened. And this is a good reminder. Uh, get on Reddit, recommend products, and we listen. And oftentimes you put us onto things that we're maybe not thinking about because boron doesn't necessarily seem like the most interesting thing right off the bat. And I think that's why it's also so great that there is this research study that a lot of you seem to have uh, read too because you all got my hint uh, when we released the product, which the title of the study is There's Nothing Boring About Boron. It's a nice play on words, but it's true. It's not something that really ever stood out to us, but when you recommended it and we looked into it, then we discovered so many interesting effects with it. And to me, I really like the vitamin D effects. For other people, the testosterone effects are very interesting. The bone remineralization effects are really interesting. And this comes back to, to some of our earlier podcasts about hormones. For example, postmenopausal women sometimes have issues with bone remineralization. So taking something like boron could be very helpful there. So there are a lot of applications to it. And it's something we naturally get in our diet. And actually, interestingly enough, there seems to be a little bit more boron in a North American diet than in a European diet. So now that we are in the Netherlands for a while, uh, we actually might want to supplement a little bit more boron because the average boron intake seems to be a little bit lower here for some reason. And it's probably because of the soil composition. Because remember, with all of these minerals, they have to come from somewhere. Plants aren't synthesizing minerals. That's not possible. So if uh, a food source contains a mineral, then it has to come out of the soil. So it seems like maybe the soils in North America are a little bit more rich in boron and the soils in Europe aren't not as rich in boron. I think on the flip side though, the soils in North America are a little bit lower in magnesium and the soils in Europe are a little bit higher in magnesium. So look into this as well. Look into uh, what is maybe the average 
consumption of some of these minerals in your part of the world. Uh, we're talking about North America and Europe now, but I haven't really looked into um, parts of Asia or Africa. Or um, South America. South America, Central America, America um, Oceania. So there are some different parts of the world. Maybe in Australia, you have very high boron levels or very low boron levels. Not totally sure on that, but... Or if you live on a small island somewhere, um, yeah. that's also a fascinating thing to consider, the different mineral content of soils um, all over the world. And that is, of course, if you're eating local, which yes. these days, not a whole lot of people are eating local anymore, but that is a, a discussion for another time. Yes. So maybe now it's time to move on to NADH. Yes, so to put a nice little bow on this boron conversation, not boring at all, um, <laughs> go check us out on Reddit. Our Reddit is r slash Depot. And if you have suggestions, questions, or ideas for products that you would like to see Nootropics Depot carry at some point in the future, um, drop a line, make a post, and um, throw your idea out there because you never know um, just exactly what might be coming down the pipeline. So with that exciting teaser out of the way, the next new product that we want to talk about is NADH and NADH plus chlorella. So the chlorella and NADH combination is one that I'm specifically curious about. Um, I have a little bit of background knowledge about NADH because of our uh, NAD Plus podcast that we did. You can also check that out on our YouTube channel um, in the In Search of Insight podcast playlist. Uh, but NADH is an important part of NAD Plus levels and cellular energy, healthy aging, and these kinds of processes. However, I want to know what is the benefit of adding chlorella, what is chlorella, and uh, why did we decide to create this offering in addition to our other NAD Plus enhancing line of products? Yeah, so NADH was one of the last additions we made when we made our Opti NAD Plus stack. And actually in the NAD Plus podcast, we even discussed NADH a little bit. And even at that point, we weren't totally sure if it was totally going to work. Um, NADH, similar to NAD+, actually, they are extremely similar. They're basically, NAD+, is the oxidized form, and NADH is the reduced form. There's only a, an incredibly minuscule difference between the two. It does mean that they're both really big molecules, and usually with a big molecule, we're not sure if they will absorb, because a molecule has to have a certain size to absorb. With NAD+, this doesn't seem to necessarily absorb, so you can't really take just NAD+, by itself. But we discovered something about NADH, and that's that NADH has its own transporter straight into the mitochondria of the cell. And part of the reason why this is the case is because NADH within the electron transport chain, which happens to be inside of the mitochondria, plays a very important role in generating ATP. So, we found that when we were beta testing just NADH by itself, it had a very profound energizing effect, like a cellular energizing effect, which we've tried to explain this a few times, uh, what this feels like. Sometimes there's a little bit of confusion about it. Think of it like you feel energized in your body rather than in your mind. This is kind of like cell what when we describe cellular energy, it's more like a physical energy, but it feels quite natural, like 
you have more power to do a physical exercise or something like that. Perhaps similar to the feeling that you have when you're on vacation and maybe you've been resting for like a day or two and then you wake up and you think to yourself, yeah, I really want to go for a walk. I'm ready for a swim. Like exactly. You have this, this physical energy uh, because of being able to relax and rest that really feels motivating to move your body and to go out and do something. Yeah, that's honestly Ooh. how, that was a big firework. That was a big one. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dutch people really go hard on New Year's and, and the days leading up to it. So, and speaking of it, we, we kind of call NADH within our Opti-NAD plus formula, we called it rocket fuel. So that's kind of fitting here. Yeah. Um, but it really added that last little extra sparkle to the Opti-NAD plus formulation where we weren't totally sure yet. And then we found some research and within bioassaying, we found like it has a very nice cellular energizing effect, something we weren't getting from other NAD plus supplements. So this is why it made its way into our Opti-NAD plus formulation. But then once we had released that, a lot of you were actually asking for, hey, I just want a product where I can maybe take a slightly higher dose of NADH. So that's why we came out with this standalone NADH product. And again, when you take it, the energizing effects are quite apparent. I've seen a lot of uh, preliminary reviews kind of roll in now, and this seems to be pretty unanimous amongst people that it does have that unique energizing effect. And the cool thing about NADH, because it is so similar to NAD+, it just has to oxidize. And once it oxidizes, you have NAD+. So it is one step away from NAD+, and this is what we're trying to enhance. And the pathway to getting to NAD+, is very simple. It's more simple than going from NMN or nicotinamide riboside to NAD+. So it's probably one of the most direct ways to enhance NAD plus status. And this is why we released it. Now, when it comes to the chlorella formulation, the chlorella is not necessarily uh, adding effects. It's being put in there as a stabilizer. So the NADH, from everything we can tell, it is quite stable as a powder, um, but we wanted to have a formulation where there was even a little bit more of a guarantee and chlorella seems to stabilize the NADH a little bit uh, and actually seems to have an effect on NADH production, NAD plus production within the body a little bit too. So this is why we had this complex and basically the reason why we chose chlorella is because it has a really high chlorophyll content. So it's not necessarily that we were going for chlorella, we just needed a good chlorophyll source and chlorophyll in its pure form, it's actually a little bit more difficult to get a hold of than we realized. So we decided to go a little bit more of the natural route and go with something like chlorella, which ended up not adding too much cost when we compared it to a, just a more pure chlorophyll product. And it's kind of interesting because there are maybe some small little micronutrients in chlorella still, and we used like a, a good high quality broken cell chlorella. So you might still get a little bit of that benefit, but basically it's a good chlorophyll source. And you can either take the powder NADH, it's a little bit cheaper. Maybe there's a slight chance that there is some um, stability after a long time. Like let's say you store the powder for a year plus or something like that. And that's maybe not totally the case with the capsules, but Either way, both seem to be very stable, seem to provide the effects we want, 
with the Chlorella formulation, just having a little bit more attention paid to the overall longer term stability. So I think we, we covered most of everything there. It's, it's a great uh, NAD plus precursor. It's very efficient. It's a great way to increase NAD plus levels quickly. And it's a great way to enhance ATP. So this is a really good one. If you're an athlete and you are also interested in NAD plus, then definitely go for NADH. Or if you do want something a little bit more full spectrum and you also want some NMN and some nicotinamide riboside, some apigenin, some curacetin, uh, and even some uh, trimethylglycine, better known as betaine, then take a look at our OptiNAD Plus stack. It has all of these, including NADH in there. So that's quite comprehensive too. But this standalone is great if you just want to get an idea of what does NADH do, or maybe there are some things in OptiNAD that don't totally agree with you, but you really like the energy uh, effects of it, then NADH is kind of taking that energy aspect of OptiNAD Plus or the, yeah, the OptiNAD Plus stack and isolating it and bringing it to the forefront. Very nice. So that brings us to the end of our new product segment, talking about the new products that we've released since our last podcast episode was launched. And I think based on all of these uh, firework launches in the background, it's time to get on to the main event, which yes. is the supercritical CO2 coriander extract. And Which, by the way, can we just shorten that to coriander extract for now? Oh, sure. Now that we've covered it, let's, let's cover supercritical first. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I like to say name. it is a long <laughs> name. It is a long name. I like to say the full name because I think that, I don't know, as a person who isn't, um, I'm not in the lab, I'm not working with chemicals. I find the word supercritical CO2 to be very exciting to say out loud. It feels kind of like a movie trailer or something. So honestly, the name as, as it is in its full length just feels a little bit more um, badass to me. But it let's, is. let's it, get the supercritical part. And it is a very part. interesting thing. And mm -hmm. it is a pretty badass product process. Yeah, I, would, I would say so too. So let's tell everybody uh, what is supercritical CO2? Why did we choose to use it? And then we can take that part off of the name and just call it the coriander extract. Yeah, that will definitely help me because I know I will get tripped up at some point. So supercritical CO2 is quite fascinating. And let's just talk about CO2 uh, to start with. It's a gas. Um, we've all probably heard about it as a greenhouse gas and the gas that plants breathe in and they breathe out oxygen. It's the gas, a gas that we breathe out as well. It's a gas that we breathe out as well. So we do the opposite of what plants do. We breathe in oxygen and we breathe out CO2. And then those plants breathe in that CO2 and breathe out oxygen. And it's probably the main gas that we're focusing on when we think about our carbon footprint, carbon emissions. Well, that's all of that, that. is what carbon footprint means. It's yeah. Because it's carbon dioxide, yes. CO2. So yes. our carbon footprint is mostly based on CO2 emissions and all of that. It's also what is in beer and gives it its nice bubbly uh, taste. You can dissolve this gas within liquids. So beer, soda water, um, Coca-Cola, something like that. The, the fizziness, it's CO2. So Let, Let's also just be as basic as we possibly can. Because now that we're telling you all these things, you probably know them about... CO2 already. CO2, carbon plus two oxygen. There we go. That's about as yes. basic as we can get. Carbon dioxide. Yes. yes. 
So normally it exists as a gas. Now, maybe if you have had um, the pleasure of playing around with CO2 in a solid form, dry ice, maybe at a Halloween party or something, you have been served a fancy cocktail with some dry ice in it and it's bubbling everywhere, or maybe as a kid you've done some experimentation with CO2 uh, with dry ice. Uh, or like me, you were a little bit naughty and maybe you at one point put some CO dry ice in a, a bottle of warm water and then closed it off and threw it away. Uh, which, by the way, don't do that. It's kind of dangerous, makes a big explosion. But it's because dry ice, it's a condensed version basically of CO2 and it can exist as a solid. And then as it melts, you call this sublimation, you just start getting gas. So if you take dry ice and you put it in an empty soda bottle or something and then you close it off, the um, dry ice will warm up and release gas and this will take up more space and then the bottle will inflate from within and then reach its pressure maximum and then explode. Similar thing happens with fermentation, for example, when um, you are making beer or something and there's still a lot of residual sugar and you put it in a bottle and you close it off, the bacteria will keep munching on the sugars in there and one of the byproducts is CO2. So they keep pooping out CO2 basically. And if there is too much sugar in your beer and the yeast are still perfectly active, they will munch through these sugars and produce enough CO2 basically to make a bit of a bottle bomb too. So something to be careful of if you are fermenting beverages, CO2. But basically those are the two main forms that you can achieve under somewhat normal conditions. So you can have gaseous CO2, you can have gaseous CO2 that's dissolved in a liquid and you can have dry ice, which making dry ice is a bit of a complex process, but you can just obtain it in the real world. Now, there is one other state of CO2 and you call this a supercritical fluid. So under the right temperature and pressure for, and, and only when it's under this perfect pressure and temperature. So once those are gone, it will just go into a gas again. But if you keep it at the right temperature, and pressure, you can briefly turn CO2 into a liquid. And when it is in a liquid, and you call this a supercritical fluid, and you push it through botanicals, so coriander seeds, it starts to act as a solvent. So gaseous CO2 wouldn't necessarily do this, dry ice wouldn't necessarily do this. But at this perfect pressure and temperature range, you can force liquid CO2 through botanicals. And as it's doing this, it will pick up compounds that are in there and it extracts. And it does this really well. And you see this technology being applied in a lot of different areas. So for example, going back to beer brewing, you see it being used sometimes to extract hops with. Um, hops are also quite high in terpenes, which let's get to that. Coriander is very high in a terpene called linalol and hops actually are quite high in a terpene called linalol too. Same with lavender as well. Same with lavender, but there is a little bit of a distinction that we'll get to later there. But lavender also contains linalol. Coriander contains linalol. Um, hemp contains linalol. So sometimes hemp for CBD and things like that are also extracted with supercritical CO2. 
So this is a really interesting extraction method and it's quite a green technology because you're not leaving any solvent residues in there. Because it just turns into a gas at the end, right? Exactly. So once you basically collect your extract and you turn off that pressure and it goes back to our normal temperature range, then all of that supercritical fluid just immediately goes into a gas and then yeah, just off gases. And if you do have some residual uh, stuff in there, it's just dissolved CO2 in your finished extract. But that's also pretty easy to pull out under a vacuum or something like that. And for anyone who's wondering, thinking about uh, this safety of supercritical CO2, we're ingesting products with CO2 all the time. Well, you're breathing CO2. Exactly. You're creating CO2 in your body. It's about, I mean, if you go and inhale a bunch of CO2, that's obviously not safe, yeah. um, but mostly because then you're not getting oxygen. But your body will really tell you when you're, not, when you're getting a lot of CO2 and not oxygen. So that's actually a really interesting thing too there. If you inhale CO2, you trigger kind of the panic centers of your brain to start gasping for air. I will venture very briefly off topic because I always think this is fascinating and not a lot of people know about this, but there was a psychologist uh, quite a while ago. He made this thing called Medusa's mixture, which is a mixture of CO2 gas and oxygen gas in the right ratio to trigger your panic uh, response while not killing you uh, because <laughs> oh, there is still oxygen in there. So you're basically consuming oxygen with too much CO2 in there and then that starts to trigger this panic response. But then that actually also has a very bizarre psychedelic effect. Uh, and he was using this Medusa's mixture uh, in clinical settings. And I think this is a fascinating part of history that, that seems to not be talked about enough. But anyways, CO2, quite interesting quite safe, obviously very problematic in terms of car emissions and stuff like that. But in um, terms of consumption and how um, normal it is in our daily lives and, and what we're breathing out, um, this is a really awesome solvent to be using. And it can just be captured from the environment. Basically, yeah. almost with an air compressor pump, you can get fairly high levels of CO2 just out of the air that we breathe. So, so that's exciting. It's abundant. Um, it is safe, it doesn't leave any solvent residues. You also don't necessarily have to heat up uh, a very large amount of a solvent, so it is maybe also a little bit more energy efficient. Um, but the really cool thing is, normally when we do an extract and you're using a solvent like ethanol or even water, you can modulate temperature, but oftentimes you if you can get away with it, you usually just want to use the highest temperature possible unless that high temperature is going to degrade compounds within your extract, but hotter solvents are oftentimes just more efficient. With supercritical CO2, you have a little bit more um, flexibility with all of the different parameters that you can tweak. So for example, you can tweak the pressure and you can tweak the temperature and the temperatures remain fairly low. Well, you can push them quite high too if you want, but oftentimes the temperatures are a little bit lower. So supercritical CO2 is great for extracting things that are a little bit more sensitive like linalool. Uh, and you can be more selective by pulling certain fractions out with different uh, temperature settings and pressure settings. So it is definitely a 
bit of a, a, a science and an art to be a good supercritical CO2 extractor. And the supercritical CO2 extractors are very big and very expensive. So that's why it's not super common, but for really high-end extracts, you sometimes see it. And that brings us to our supercritical CO2, supercritical fluid CO2 extract of coriander, which we'll just call coriander extract now. This coriander extract concentrates linalool and it does it at a concentration of 25%. So, but there's something interesting about this linalool. So as Erica mentioned earlier, linalool is also a very big component of lavender and lavender essential oils. But there's two different types of linalool. So you can have R-linalol and you can have S-linalol. So these are two different enantiomers. The R-linalol is more characteristic of lavender and it is a much stronger odorant. Uh, so it's detectable at lower concentrations than S-linalol. And S-linalol is what is in coriander. And S-linalol is not characteristically lavender smelling. So if you smell our um, coriander extract, it will not smell like lavender. It will smell more lemony. Uh, a lot of people actually around the office have described it as lemon pledge. So it has a pretty <laughs> profound lemon aroma. And this is because S-linalol has more of a fruity citrusy type of smell, whereas uh, R-linalol has a more characteristic lavender herbaceous type floral. of smell, floral. Uh, so they are quite different and they actually are a little bit different in effects too, it seems. Um, so with the coriander extract, we are focusing solely on S-linalol. And I think it's also kind of funny to mention that even though R-linalol is detectable at much lower concentrations and S-linalol does not have as strong of an aroma, it is still incredibly powerful. So it, when we first got the, the beta test samples, it was sent in just a little baggie of powder basically in an envelope and when I accepted the package immediately, just even outside, just through the package, I could smell the coriander. And when I opened it, our whole house smelled like coriander. Uh, so it is a, it's very powerful. Um, I've heard actually quite, it, people seem to be divided. Either you love it or you hate it, or well, sometimes you're a little bit neutral on it, but. But there are people specifically who have a very sensitive um, gene to the flavor of coriander and or... But it's or, not because of linalol, actually. And or cilantro. Yes. And so if it's not from linalol... Oh, wait. Actually, I was doing a little bit of research on this beforehand. It's because they have a specific sensitivity to aldehydes. Yes. And part of the aroma and the flavor in coriander is coming from a specific kind of aldehyde, which is also existing in a lot of soaps and detergents as well. So there's a well, select part of the enough, population. Linalol obviously is also in sure. a lot of soaps and things like that. Makes sense. There's there's a small part of the population who uh, it's honestly have actually a not even that small. It's it's in the the whole percentage numbers, which I think once you get there, it can be a lot of people. So. Depending on where you are in the world, I think it's between 7 to 17% of people have this. 
Yes. So if you look at that over a population of now, I think we surpassed 8 billion on the planet. That's a few billion people. Sure. Or but no, small. it's not a few billion people. My math, <laughs> well, actually, it's close to it. Right? Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. It's small relative to total population. Something interesting, I, I found this interesting, was that um, in cultures where coriander is not used as typically, there is more sensitivity to these flavor compounds and these aldehydes. But for um, cultures where coriander or cilantro is being used all the time, there is a smaller percentage of the population who is sensitive to this flavor and a smaller amount of people who truly dislike this flavor and cannot handle it in their food. It, that makes a lot of sense. And you actually see similar things uh, with lactose, for example. In certain areas of the world, you see more lactose intolerance than others. And in areas of the world where lactose is being consumed more often, you see less lactose intolerance. Makes sense. So that also brings us a little bit to, okay, so but let's, let's conclude that. So when we take our supercritical CO2 fluid, we force it through these coriander seeds, then we can extract the S-linalol. And we can do this at a concentration of 25% in our coriander extract. Let's take a quick firework break, enjoy the sounds. Alright, back to our main programming. So, coriander is actually one of the most widely used spices throughout the world. It's also one of probably the oldest used spices throughout the world. And, Erica briefly mentioned this, this was a surprise for some people at the office actually. Coriander is the seed of cilantro. So I think in the US and in Mexico, um, using cilantro beliefs is more common. And if you go into the Middle East, using the seeds is a little bit more common. But they're both the same plant. So when you grow cilantro, first you get these really big broad leaves or when you grow coriander, it, by the way, the, the full name for it is Coriandrum sativum. So that's the plant we're talking about. And Coriandrum sativum makes seeds, which is commonly referred to as coriander, and the first leaves that it produces are referred to as cilantro. So when we grow Coriandrum sativum, it has these big, broad leaves, and we like to use that in salsas, in... Um, uh, even in certain Mediterranean foods like baba ganoush, you put quite a bit of uh, cilantro leaves in there. And this cilantro leaf actually is highest in the aldehyde that Erica was mentioning earlier. So one of those is 2E-dodecanol, and that seems to be one of the ones that has a bit of a soapy taste for certain people who have this uh, genetic encoding for detecting it as a soapy flavor. The cilantro leaves also have some linalol, however, it seems to be a little bit higher in those aldehydes. So the leaves produce more of this spicy herbaceous undertone, and then the uh, seeds produce more of this lemony herbaceous flavor. When the growing climate becomes a little bit hotter, or you disturb the roots of the coriandrum sativum plant, these big broad leaves then 
quickly go away and the plant bolts. So what this means is that when it gets disturbed, when it gets stressed by heat or by agitation of the roots, it very quickly increases its growth rate and goes up and up and up and up and up and then it produces flowers and then it produces seeds. So for those of, of you who are watching on YouTube right now, uh, you will actually recognize exactly what we're talking about, the seeds, the flowers, and the leaves of the coriander plant. So these small white flowers is what is being produced after the plant bolts, and then after these flowers are, are growing, the coriander plant will dry and release the seeds, and that's the part of the coriander plant that we often see used in um, Middle Eastern and Mediterranean cooking. Um, as a spice, which has this really nice, refreshing, and very powerful flavor, especially when you're getting really, really good coriander seeds that are high quality. Yes, and when you look at the uh, essential oil profile of the raw seeds, it's usually about 70 to 80% linalool, and it's this S linalool. So most of the aroma and flavor that we are getting from these coriander seeds is linalool. And if you hold some of these seeds in your hand, they're actually really light and they can very easily disperse in the wind. So it, it makes sense that, that this is what the plant does. Um, a lot of North American um, Coriandrum sativum farmers or just hobbyists who have it at home actually want to prevent it from bolting because in North America the cilantro leaves are a little bit more priced where in other parts of the world the seeds are a little bit more priced. So you also have a few different cultivars. Some are a slow bolt cultivar, which will produce cilantro leaves for a longer period of time. And then you have other varieties that maybe produce seeds quicker. And then there's different harvesting methods for cilantro, where if you cut the central stem of it and you just cut really big bushes of it, it will regrow and it will regrow the cilantro leaves before bolting. But when it bolts, it's quite interesting. These, these big broad leaves, they become very thin and spindly. And you can still use them. There's just not a whole lot of biomass, so you can't get as much out of the leaf material. But then you get these seeds and you can eat the seeds fresh too. And I believe the seeds are probably used a little bit more fresh in the supercritical CO2 extraction because it has a higher content of linalool. Linalool is quite volatile, uh, which means that if you just leave it out, if it's drying, or even if you just open our bottle of solution or even the capsules, you can smell it quite a lot. And it's because the linalool is actually coming off of it. And it's really hard to prevent this. Uh, within our solution though, we mix it with a little bit of rice bran oil, and that will help keep the uh, very volatile linalool more in there. But I will say one of my beta test samples that I didn't really store properly, it was just in a plastic little baggie that was very leaky uh, after about two years, because it actually took us quite a bit of time to come out with this. It's actually coming from uh, an Italian company and this Italian company is actually getting the um, coriander from Ukraine. So let's touch on that a little bit too with everything that's happening in the Ukraine. We also really like this product because the Ukrainian farmers are apparently still producing this uh, coriander seed and they are still being extracted there in Italy. So by um, 
offering this extract, we are also supporting Ukrainian farmers a little bit, which during this time, I think Ukraine can use as much support as it can with all the atrocious things that are happening there. With that in mind, I think it's a, also a good moment to acknowledge the uh, role of Ukrainian farmers in the production of coriander, but also grains and other food sources that we rely on just around the world. And I wasn't aware of this before we started talking about and researching for this podcast, um, as well as uh, being more aware of what's happening in the world and what's happening in the Ukraine. I didn't know how important they were as a provider for so much food for Europe as well as for the entire world with exports. So the fact that we're able to um, focus specifically on coriander, which is I think one of their staple crops, um, is an exciting and interesting way to also bring back these very scientific and intellectual conversations into our awareness of what is happening around us in the world um, politically as well in terms of where we are getting our food sources and our supplements from. When we're talking about where we buy our food from and where our food is growing, uh, we might be thinking about vegetables or milk or ingredients that we're using on sort of an everyday basis. But when you are receiving a, a product like a solution or a supplement, you may not be thinking exactly back to the origin of where that product is being grown. And that's something that we really like to explore on In Search of Insight is to talk about uh, where these plants and botanicals are originally from and who is growing them and how, and the labor involved in growing them, and also the knowledge and the traditional uses of these, uh, these plants, botanicals, and food sources, because this can really help us um, form the foundation of understanding why these particular ingredients are so prized and why they're valuable and how they can benefit our health um, in a variety of different ways aside from being tasty to use in our cooking. And, and especially when you think of it with something like coriander and with one of the, the compounds you want in there being very volatile and easy to lose. So imagine if you dry it wrong, oh, most of your linalool is gone. If you store it improperly, most of your linalool is gone. So Coriander is a very difficult thing to do well and because of that it's also quite a prized spice and it's something that dates back a really really long time so apparently when they opened up King Tutankhamun's tomb they found a very large quantity of coriander seeds I believe half a kilo or something which given how light these seeds are that is quite a lot and the interesting thing about that too is apparently it, we don't totally know where uh, Coriandrum sativum is from. Uh, what is Although in my research I was reading that the earliest examples of the plant were found in uh, what we call modern-day Israel, so that particular area of the world. Which is funny because I also read something else that uh, it's native to Italy. So oh, interesting. There, there is, and because of that, there really isn't at this point a scientific consensus on exactly where coriandrum sativum originated from. And to be honest, that's not totally out of the ordinary. It's very hard sometimes to trace plants back. Absolutely. Um, it's similar when we had our podcast about saffron. We know that it comes somewhere from the Middle East, but we don't know exactly where. And it would make sense that it's coming from Israel or Syria or areas like that, or even Italy. There was a lot of trade happening there, a very fertile land. Um, 
the cradle of civilization basically is there. So it would make sense. But we don't know exactly where it came from, but what we do know is that Coriandrum sativum did not grow wild in Egypt. So this is quite strange that you open up King Tutankhamun's tomb and wow, you find a lot of coriander seeds there. A tidbit from my research is that Egyptians were the first people to cultivate coriander. Yes, but why would you cultivate, go through just cultivating a plant, learning how to grow it, taking up valuable space with it, um, having people dedicated to farming it, to processing it, to harvesting it, you really have to make a very conscious decision to do that. You don't just do that with a whatever plant. So we're leading you into uh, imagining the reasons why you might have, as, a, as an early person, been curious about cultivating or uh, tasting or taking coriander um, and paying special attention to it and putting all of this labor into it. And I'm certain that uh, the flavor is something that was really sought after. But beyond that, um, the it health might benefits. Have been, but let's let's cover the health benefits first before yes. I make a case a little bit against that, perhaps. So, but maybe not in Egypt. Okay, let's cover that first. So the name coriander seems to come from the ancient Greek word koreos, which is bug. And apparently, when you have a bed bug infestation, which luckily I've never had. One of the things you can, one of the early warning signs is a smell that is reminiscent of coriander. Interesting. So, and this is likely why it's called coriander. It's because of this ancient Greek word, coreus. And so maybe the ancient Greeks didn't really enjoy the flavor of it, but maybe they were still using it medicinally. I'm actually not 100% certain on that. But I do think that in ancient Egypt, they were using it as a, a, a beneficial flavor, something that they liked, because you see quite a lot of recipes for ancient Egyptian wines and beer, apparently, that included coriander. And there might be a good reason for this, too. So linalol actually has very uh, good antimicrobial effects. So it works as a bit of a preservative. Mm -hmm. And it also has fairly strong oxidation regulating effects so it can prevent the oxidation of certain flavors and if we think of modern beer production we put hops in hops actually are also quite high in linalol <laughs> and if you look at beers if you uh, look at the linalol content it can be quite high sometimes okay so now this is making me think about a beer style that has become a little bit more popular in recent years, at least in the North American beer market, which is Goza or Goes, depending on how you are reading it or pronouncing it. And one of the first uh, experiences that I had with Goza or this very sour beer is the traditional way that it's brewed is with coriander. Yes, and, and a little bit of salt. I never put that together until now in terms of why that was the case, because the beer doesn't particularly taste like coriander, at least not from my memory, but the fact that it has these um, mi microbial, antimicrobial. antimicrobial and antibacterial effect would make a lot of sense for ancient beer brewers. Yes, and actually, if we look, for example, at the, some of the first IPAs, um, uh, Indian Pale Ale, it was because the British were sending beer to India when they had colonies there. And 
that is quite a long journey on a boat. But they wanted to drink beer there. But because beer contains, especially at that time, quite a lot of microbes, uh, yeasts, still a lot of residual sugars, you couldn't keep it for very long and it definitely wouldn't keep on a long boat journey. So what they quickly figured out is that if you just dump a, a, a lot of hops just straight in the barrel. A boatload, if you will. A boatload, <laughs> yes. If you put a boatload of just fresh hops in a barrel and then you send that barrel halfway across the world, the beer is preserved. And then it's also dry hopped. So that's one of the first that is the IPA that we know and love nowadays came from that as a preservation technique. And actually, now that we have um, modern beer brewing techniques where we need to have good shelf life and, you know, this modern beer brewing techniques, I'm talking a few hundred years ago now already, we needed a way to preserve beer so we didn't have to just brew beer and drink it right away. How can we preserve it? How can we maybe brew beer when we have the the wheat harvest and the barley harvest? And or then, a surplus of these Or a things. surplus, and then we can preserve it. And one of those things is um, hops. Hops contain alpha and beta acids, and those work as really great preservatives. But the linalool content also works as a good preservative. And if you look at the ancient Egyptian wines and beers, they all seem to contain some amount of coriander. And I don't think we really knew about hops until much, much later. So maybe one of these first kind of preservative additives to these brewed beverages actually were coriander seeds. And if you think of this Goza beer style, there are three different preservatives in there. First of all, the beer is soured and bacteria and certain yeast types and things like that, they have a much harder time living in acidic environments, in low pH environments. That's also why one of the most popular food preservation methods is pickling. So you just lower the pH of a vegetable and now it doesn't spoil anymore because it kills off the majority of the microbes. So in a Goza beer you have the acidity is already acting as a preservative then the coriander is probably acting as a pretty good preservative and then there's a small amount of salt that is usually added to it and salt is also quite antimicrobial so you have quite a shelf stable beer then the and same kind of is an amazing simple combination of these ingredients that is elegant in flavor but also as practical as it gets yes and the same is true for example for goza so a little bit different than goza or lambic Lambic is the, the flat version of it. Goza is the um, effervescent version of it. This is a beer that is made by wild inocula inoculation, so just yeast and bacteria in the air, and that oftentimes ends up producing a lot of acids, and these acids preserve the beer. So you can, one of the reasons why this was also made was for longer-term preservation of beer. You also see different beer styles in Berlin, now we're just getting into a beer podcast. We are clearly beer nerds here, but <laughs> let's backtrack a little bit. So you see coriander being used in ancient Egyptian beer styles. You see it being used in uh, traditional Belgian beer styles. And when we talk about pickling, what is maybe something you oftentimes see floating in a jar of pickles? Coriander seeds. Yeah. yeah. And within these pickled vegetables, now you have salt. Salt's acting as a preservative. You have acid in the form usually of vinegar. Or if you are doing fermentation-based pickles, usually it's lactic acid. 
and a little bit of salt. But then also you have these coriander seeds in there, which contain a pretty powerful antimicrobial agent. And this is also preserving the food a little bit. So it seems that, and actually coriander seems to be one of the oldest spices that have been used. And maybe it was also used because back in the day, now we don't really have to think about this anymore. We have fridges, we have freezers, we have a lot of different techniques like pasteurization to keep things safe for long-term storage. But back then you didn't have any of that. So you needed to preserve things in a different way. Maybe things like coriander seeds were oftentimes used for that. Um, but on top of that, coriander seeds, the medicinal properties of it have also been known for a very long time. So one, it's a flavoring agent and two, it's medicinal. And in these ancient cultures, it seems like the applications for coriander were pretty much endless, um, but there are some standout ones. So, Really b quickly before we get into this, yeah. I just want to acknowledge that I find it so fascinating to think about food as representative of human history and technology, and especially flavor combinations. Because before learning a little bit about fermentation, learning about where uh, different ingredients are coming from. Um, maybe you eat a dish and you think to yourself, wow, that's a clever or creative combination of flavors and ingredients. And now that we're getting so deep into all the different uses of coriander and all the different benefits of using that in your food, it makes me think about the fact that flavors that we find familiar or nostalgic or that we know as a part of our diets may be coming from the practical nature of needing to preserve food and feed ourselves, keep ourselves alive, more so than, oh, I have a particular affection for this certain flavor. Absolutely, and I think something we've also lost now, now we, we cook with a lot of these spices just because they have a nice flavor, but maybe hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, we cooked, yes, because it has a nice flavor, but also because we know it has medicinal properties. And why not combine the two things? You're nourishing your body with nutrients. Why not nourish it with bioactive compounds? And maybe we've lost this a little bit, but we're getting back into it now with taking some of these isolated things now that we know a lot of the research on it. Now we can take something like linalol in a, in a purer form, in a higher dosage, and get some more benefits from it. But maybe back then, it seems like it's quite easy to grow coriander. It almost grows like a weed if you were to start it in your uh, backyard and you forgot about some seeds and it dispersed. So it grows quite readily. Uh, the fresh seeds are easy to pick and actually the fresh seeds were sometimes pickled as well. So you see maybe quite a lot of use of high amounts of this very fresh uh, seed with high amounts of linalon. And when you then look at it from a, a usefulness in uh, healthcare back then, one of the biggest things that was being used for was digestive health, interestingly enough. So um, if you had some GI discomfort, uh, it could help relax some of those muscles. So it seemed to be very uh, oftentimes used there, kind of as a digestive aid. Uh, then another thing was it was oftentimes applied for pain. Uh, and then it was also applied for mood states, so enhancing our mood states, making ourselves a little bit more calm and uh, boosting just overall mood, giving like a nice little positive mood boost. So those are some of its 
traditional uses uh, as a spice in food. Clearly it had some major significance to the ancient Egyptians, otherwise you wouldn't start farming it in an area where it's not from. So it's probably also harder to farm it in, in an area like that. Um, why would you take such a large quantity of it into your grave? The, we know that the ancient Egyptians seemed to take things that were most important to them into the grave. So based on that, clearly it's been very important for a long time. And now when we jump into the, the modern research on it, we can verify a lot of these things. And of course, there are a lot of different compounds within the coriander seeds, but like we said earlier, the highest content of the essential oils that are in there is linalool. So we'll just focus basically only on linalool for the rest of this podcast and specifically S-linalool. So when you smell S-linalool, if you've smelled some coriander essential oil or you have um, smelled some lavender oil, you might have already had a bit of a calming effect with it. And I think it's, Erica, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but I think sometimes people put lavender flowers in a little pouch and you put it underneath your pillow to sleep better. Yeah. Have you heard of that? Oh, for sure. Um, also in your laundry mm -hmm. or in your underwear drawer, I don't know, any, any place that would offer a particular moment of comfort or kind of calm, aromatherapy. And maybe antimicrobial activity, which I hadn't thought about oh. that if you put it with your laundry and things like that and the linalool can act as an antimicrobial agent. Yeah. But when you inhale it, because it is volatile, you are actually absorbing it into your bloodstream too. So if you get a good whiff of lavender essential oil, if you get a good whiff of coriander essential oil, or if maybe you're a, a nerd like me and you have a bottle of pure linalool hanging around somewhere and you smell that and you have a bit of a calming effect, then it's because when you inhale these volatile compounds, you're actually absorbing them into your bloodstream. Linalool sniffers unite. Yes. <laughs> The, the linalool huffers. So you can also take it orally then, of course, and, and that's what we are doing now. Of course, you can maybe smell your bottle to kind of kickstart the process, but then when you take it orally and you absorb it, the linalool actually goes to work as a positive allosteric modulator of the GABA receptor. And the, I found a study that actually had a bit of a figure there of how much that is. So Sometimes when we talk about a positive allosteric modulator, we don't know exactly how much it's enhancing the sensitivity of the receptor. But for linalool, it seems like it enhances the sensitivity of the GABA receptor by about 1.7. And in comparisons against some things we cannot mention, unfortunately, on this podcast, linalool seemed to fare very well in terms of its relaxing effects. So this is partially because of it's positive allosteric modulation of the GABA receptor, which I think is quite fascinating. I really like things that act on the GABA receptors, but definitely more things that, like lemon balm, which um, increase overall GABA levels, or something like a positive allosteric modulator over something that's more of like a direct agonist. I seem to prefer those. And I'm a huge fan of the coriander. I think Erica is too. We both really enjoy this extract. So it has a very profound 
GABAergic calming effect, but there is something extra happening. If you have a pure GABAergic, it can be pretty surface level. It, it has like a good, it can knock the edge off of things, but it doesn't have a deep, almost physical relaxing effect. But the coriander extract does. And it's because linalol also is a NMDA antagonist. So NMDA is a glutamatergic receptor. Uh, it also has a role in pain processing. We actually covered this quite extensively in our pain podcast too. So that has more of a, uh, almost a physically relaxing effect a little bit there, but NMDA receptor antagonism can also have a, a nice calming, mentally calming effect. So if we think of the calming effect of magnesium, for example, magnesium also blocks the NMDA receptor. So a lot of the calming effects of magnesium are coming from that. So now imagine taking something like the calming GABAergic type of effects from something like lemon balm and then combining it with magnesium. Now you're starting to get a little bit closer to the effects profile of something like, uh, of not something like, but exactly linalol. But then it gets even more interesting. And this is another one of my favorite targets, actually. It's the voltage-gated calcium channels. And when you block those, you can have uh, muscle relaxation, but it can also have a calming and mood-boosting effect. And you see this in some other things. So, for example, some of the cava lactones in cava, they seem to also uh, block this, the, the voltage-gated calcium channels. And because of that, it also has this relaxing, mood-boosting, physically relaxing effect. So you're getting all of that in the coriander extract and you're getting all of that in a very volatile compound that absorbs incredibly fast and incredibly well. So the, uh, the result of this particular profile of effects is extremely powerful calming and yes. extremely expedient benefits. And I really love this extract because I find that it's one of the few supplements that I can take and within five, 10 minutes, I can already feel that it's working. Um, I really like lemon balm and I find that lemon balm is comforting and relaxing and at times it can make me feel a little bit sleepy. But if I'm taking lemon balm in a powder, um, I'll mix it up with some water and that can be a very quick kind of um, rescue if I'm having a very stressful moment or I feel myself starting to get a bit nauseous, something like that. With the coriander solution, it is on a totally no a different level. Um, the flavor of the solution itself is very powerful, but I think the power of the flavor um, also prepares me for the effects. And so I find it to be um, really, really effective. And it's a bit of a ritual because of the intensity of the flavor. And then the fact that it's so physically and mentally relaxing, and it really does boost my mood um, in a way that I have not experienced with any other supplement. And I'm a really big fan of supplements that help with stress support and that are calming. Um, I'm a longtime favorite uh, fan of Sibelia Sage and of Lemon Balm, but I do find that the coriander is perhaps the most grounding and physically relaxing of all of these calming supplements that I have taken. Um, and it works really fast and for a long time as well. It's a super, super effective 
choice. And I like it in the solution because I find the flavor exciting and interesting and it helps me kind of connect to a bit of a mindfulness moment and going, okay, this taste is intense and I'm swallowing this sort of oily solution and some of that can feel a little bit uncomfortable, but I know that I'm about to experience relaxation that will help me to you know, manage and deal with uh, a particularly stressful or intense moment. Yes, and with the part of the reason also why it kicks in so quickly, because we also have capsules with it. So we figured out a way to actually get this oil in a powder form. So then we can also offer it in a capsule, which is really convenient. But if you put the solution in your mouth and you don't necessarily swallow it right away, maybe you keep it in your mouth for just a little bit. I wouldn't recommend doing it a long time because then maybe... It can get pretty spicy. It's, yes, I don't necessarily experience it as spicy. I ex experience it as like overwhelmingly floral and citrusy. I've heard some different uh, uh, takes on that. You find it spicy, which also makes sense because cilantro or coriander can add a bit of a spicy note sometimes I to guess, food. I guess volatile is a better way of describing it. It's mm -hmm. like, it's intense and it kind of attacks your taste buds. Yes, but because it is volatile and because your mouth is quite warm, when you put the solution in your mouth, Part of the reason why it's also so uh, powerful is because it's evaporating in your mouth and you have this almost linalool gas in your mouth, which inadvertently you would also be inhaling that a little bit um, through your nose, uh, through your mouth, into your lungs, similar to if you take a big whiff off of lavender oil or something like that. So part of the reason why it also probably goes to work really quickly is because you're actually inhaling some of this linalool as you're swallowing the solution. That makes sense. And this is one of the reasons why I personally really like the linalool solution. And I actually really like the linalool coriander solution that's high in linalool. Um, and I really like the flavor of coriander. I cook with it a lot. So for me, it's not necessarily an off-putting flavor. It seems most people actually like it. There are a select few people who really don't like it and we actually have some uh, technicians working on making the solutions and the capsules who unfortunately really dislike the smell of it, which sucks if you are doing a big run of it because it's a very powerful smell and it really takes over the room. Uh, you can, I can smell it sometimes when it, the, the beta testing sample was just in my cupboard. I could smell it out of the cupboard, which to me wasn't a big deal because I like the smell of it. But it's quite powerful, volatile, and you end up consuming it through multiple different ways when you take the solution orally. Uh, one more tip. If you do have the solution and the flavor is a little bit intense for you, you can actually take just a, a veggie capsule or a gelatin capsule and you can take half a milliliter of the solution and you can just drip it into the capsule and then close it up and then take it like that. And actually you can even make a few in advance because the oil will stay relatively okay within a capsule for a while, especially in a gelatin capsule. But that actually does make me think now, we did try and put the powder in a veggie capsule and it ended up dissolving the veggie capsule. So actually, scrap that. Don't put it in a veggie capsule for long-term storage, but if you just want to take it quickly, feel free to just put it in a veggie capsule and swallow it right away, and then you will not taste it. 
Um, but if you want to do it for longer term, then you have to put it in a gelatin capsule because it will not work in a veggie capsule. Or if you're a total herb freak like me, combine it with the Tulsi or the holy basil solution, yes. and then you've got a mouthful of super green, super volatile, um, super spiritual flavors going on. <laughs> <laughs> and actually the effects go great together. I really like our, and it's also super critical CO2, the holy basil. So I really like actually combining the holy basil and the coriander extract. So, but that's one way to do it if you want to kind of circumvent the taste a little bit or you can go for the capsules, but it is quite interesting if you are okay with the flavor to take it like that. Another thing that's quite interesting, and you do have to be very conservative here with the amount you use, but uh, I ran out of coriander seeds and I was making some baba ganoush and I really like putting coriander seeds in baba ganoush, but I didn't have some, so I just dripped a couple of drops of our coriander solution in there, and it was one of the most freshest, most pungent coriander flavors I've ever achieved in baba ganoush. Honestly, it was a little bit over the top, and this was maybe with like four or five little drops of it in there, but think of that too. If you like cooking with coriander, you can use a drop or two of our coriander solution and you will get a very, very high quality, very fresh coriander flavor. This reminds me of when Emil was mentioning that you can use um, the saffron extract powder as a colorant for your risotto if you want to yes. give it a little bit more of a rich golden flavor or a little bit of a rich golden color. So the fun thing I think about a lot of these botanicals and supplements is that, of course, we are taking them and specifically looking at them for their health benefits, but they're coming from food. They're coming from herbs that we often use in our cooking, and why not try them in your food too, especially if you're using them just as you know a tiny little flavor enhancer or even as a little bit of color. Um, it's a fun way to think of your supplements in a more multi-use kind of manner. Absolutely. And coming back to that earlier conversation, oftentimes there were bioactive compounds within our food that we knew of and that we did on purpose. And actually, there still are, like for example, if you were to eat red cabbage, you would get a lot of anthocyanins and you would maybe have similar effects to a dosage of our tart cherry extract. You might have some of those similar oxidation and inflammation balancing effects. So there are still a lot of compounds within your food. And I, this is pretty funny, I forget, it's not even a real quote, but I think some famous Greek philosopher, uh, and maybe it was Socrates or, or something like that, there's a quote um, floating around the internet that's something like, let thy food be thy medicine or something like that. Turns out this guy never said that, it's completely not true, uh, but it's kind of a, a funny quote, uh, especially in the context of this conversation where food can have these very beneficial compounds in it, especially when you use some of these spices like coriander or, for example, you use cloves and cloves have a lot of eugenol and eugenol is another compound that's in our holy basil extract. Or you use black pepper and a lot of the aroma is coming from beta caryophyllene and beta caryophyllene is in our ruffle powder, for example. Or you eat a, a curry and it is a brilliant orange color and that orange color is coming from turmeric and 
the well specifically it's the curcuminoids within turmeric that is producing that but then those curcuminoids also have beneficial effects and within this curry sometimes you also have black pepper so then you're getting the piperine content that's making the curcuminoids more bioavailable and you're adding beta caryophyllene in so you're getting this interesting complex mixture of bioactive compounds from food. It's exciting because it puts into perspective that everything is connected and also that the progress in food technology and in scientific research and in lab testing is so incredible to the point that we can taste certain dishes or think about certain uh, particular foods and realize humans were discovering these effects as they were eating. Um, that's how we discovered all of these different flavors and combinations, uh, but over so many years of research and use and um, using these for their health benefits as well as food sources, now we've gotten to this point where we can research them and actually see um, the scientific data for why these maybe were huge parts of certain cuisines and certain cultures and why they were being used so regularly for their health benefits and calming and cognitive enhancement properties as well. Definitely. And, and the more you dig, the more you find that a lot of these things that we like to consume, these active compounds, you're finding it back in food and vice versa. So moving on from there, basically with all of these effects, so you have the this GABAergic effect, you have this glutamatergic effect, and you have this calcium channel blocker effect. The overall effects profile is very physically and mentally relaxing, but it's not particularly sedating, and there's a lot of studies uh, done on this too. It does seem like when compared to other GABAergic compounds, linalol, both S and R linalol, lack a lot of locomotor suppression. So basically, if you are looking at sedation or even stimulation in an animal model, you are basically tracking if I give this animal like a rat or a mouse, if I give them linalol or let's say we give them caffeine, then what do we see? Well, when you give um, an, a rat caffeine, they will start moving around a little bit more, so their locomotor activity is enhanced. When you give them linalol, nothing really changes in their locomotor activity, but when you give them something that's quite heavily sedating, you will see the locomotor activity drop down a lot, and you see this sometimes with GABAergic compounds. The Do you recall, I have a quick question about Sibelius sage. Do you recall if this is having relaxing effects because of its GABAergic effects? Yes, so Sibelius sage also contains rosmarinic acid, which is also in lemon balm. And rosmarinic acid blocks an enzyme called GABA transaminase, and GABA transaminase breaks down GABA. So what happens when you block GABA transaminase? You feel very relaxed and sleepy. Because? GABA helps us stay awake. Yeah, but GABA transaminase is breaking down GABA. So if we block GABA transaminase, what then goes up? Then GABA goes up. Yes, okay. because it's no longer being broken down. So gotcha. it's similar to that Vignatex conversation we were having earlier, where ah. we are blocking an enzyme, monoamine oxidase B, 
that normally breaks down dopamine and norepinephrine and the result of blocking that is what? More dopamine and norepinephrine. Yes. And okay. similar with GABA transaminase. So that's what rosmarinic acid is doing. And the Sibelius sage has a very uh, sedating feeling for me. And if I compare the relaxation and calming effects of the Sibelius sage to the coriander extract, I find the coriander extract to be much more um, energizing and mood boosting in an uplifting way and not in a particularly sedating way. And this is really interesting because it goes back to the complexity of the GABA receptor. And specifically, when you look at a GABA receptor, it's a ionotropic receptor. So that means the receptor, basically when ligands bind to it, it opens up and then it can put ions into the neuron and then that causes different electrical signals and that's how these neurotransmitters, some, for, for example, GABA, specifically the GABA-A receptors, that's how they work. But it's not just one general thing. With a GABA-A receptor, it's actually a bunch of little subunits that congregate and then make the bigger GABA-A receptor. But that means that on a single GABA-A receptor, there can be a mix of different subunits and compounds bind specifically to different subunits. And these different subunits produce different effects. So certain GABAergic subunits actually produce sedation, whereas other GABAergic subunits do not cause sedation. Some GABAergic subunits cause relaxing effects. Um, some GABAergic receptors don't actually cause that much of a relaxing effect. Some GABAergic receptors when you activate them, they really decrease your memory, which I'm sure maybe after a few too many Goza beers with coriander in there, you might have experienced that. So there's a lot of different ways you can approach the GABA receptor with a compound. And there actually is a study looking at this, at the different subunits that linalol is hitting. And these subunits are ones that are not particularly prone to producing large amounts of sedation. But they are uh, quite prone to producing quite powerful relaxing effects. So if you take something with high linalol content, you have a very nice, you're going to have a relaxing effect that is fairly devoid of a sedating effect. And it's because linalol is hitting the different subunits in a, in a particular way rather than um, binding to one that produces more sedation or activating the receptor in a different way. And partially this is also likely because it is not directly activating the GABAergic receptor and it's just making the GABAergic receptor more sensitive. Whereas when we think of something like lemon balm, where basically all it's doing is inhibiting an enzyme that normally breaks down GABA and because of that we have more GABA, that would then mean that GABA can more indiscriminately activate all the different subunits. So um, if you have more GABA available, then the chance of sedation is also a lot more there. The interesting thing now to consider, and I actually haven't done this yet for reasons unknown, because this would be a really good stack, would be to stack lemon balm and coriander together. Because coriander is making the GABAergic receptor certain subunits, more sensitive, about 1.7 times more sensitive in this study I found. So then if you were to take a rosmarinic acid containing plant like Sibelius sage 
or uh, lemon balm and you were to combine it with coriander, then coriander is making certain subunits more sensitive. So then that would mean when you have more GABA coming from lemon balm supplementation or Sibelia sage supplementation, then the GABA going to work is going to activate these non-sedating but relaxing GABA subunits at a higher quantity. So you will have a synergistic effect there that will definitely have a more sedating effect, but will also increase the calming power of something like lemon balm. And actually lemon balm would also enhance the calming power of something like coriander. I'm so. very excited to try this combination because I'm really all about the calming supplements and to put two supplements together that are working hand in hand with these uh, GABAergic systems sounds like the most scientifically perfect combination for a calming effect. Absolutely, and I think this would be great uh, maybe to take the coriander and lemon balm on a flight to kind of create some much needed physical and mental relaxation, which would maybe help you sleep a little bit better in such an unnatural position with so much noise going on around you. So that kind of covers the, the interesting way in which coriander, linalol specifically, acts on the GABAergic receptors. And it also brings back this idea that the GABAergic system is not as simple as many people make it out to be. And it's actually quite complex when you take into account the different subunits, which then also has the benefit that we don't always have to have a GABAergic supplement that's sedating. But I will say that a lot of people are having very good results with the coriander extract for sleep. Uh, many of my colleagues have actually let me know over the last few months that when they take the coriander extract, they experience such good sleep that they just haven't had sleep like that in years, um, especially in stressful moments. So even though it's not necessarily sedating, you would n normally think something that's sedating would be good for sleep and something that necessarily isn't. Oh, another firework break. No. That was a quick one. So you would normally think that something that's sedating, that's what you want for sleep. But that doesn't necessarily seem to be the case. And I think part of the reason why is because when you take something that blocks the NMDA receptor, you seem to enhance deep sleep a little bit more. And you see this when you take magnesium before bed. And magnesium is a really popular thing to take before bed, partially for its effects on MDMA, NMDA. And you see this with the coriander extract, the linalol is blocking the NMDA receptor and also activating the GABAergic system, which helps you get to sleep. And then the NMDA receptor blockade can help change your sleep architecture for the better. So I think that's a really interesting thing for coriander. Okay, so in terms of a sleep stack, because I'm getting to that point in the podcast where now I'm starting to put things together. I do actually think we are kind of, let, let's see, L maybe let's cover one or two more effects before we get into the stacking section. Okay, because I'll, I'm I'll, also I'll hold starting on to, to put it. some stacks together. It's st they're starting to come together in the periphery, so keep going, but I'm going to keep this one in my mind. Okay, uh, as the I, I want to hear your coriander stack. Okay, let's, let's, okay. let's break well, our, uh, let's break the mold. Yes, okay, so last month we were talking about Cognance, yes. Bacopa. I know from 
almost every single episode of talking about sleep support that Bacopa is an important ingredient in sleep support and that helps mm -hmm. sleep. So I'm thinking Bacopa, coriander, and magnesium as a great combination for helping you get to sleep and have very restful sleep. Yeah, I think that would be a great combination and I think especially if you have issues getting to sleep adding in some lemon balm there with the conversation we just had where lemon balm can be a little bit more sedating or something like Sibelius can be a little bit more sedating. Although I will say by the way that for me Sibelius Sage is energizing and a lot of the marketing material for Sibelius Sage indicates that it's energizing and I've heard from a lot of you that it's energizing. So this also brings back the conversation that has been alive and well on Reddit the last month with the release of Cognans, there is immense biological differences between individuals. So Erica is getting a strong sedating effect from Sibelius Sage. I am not and I am getting uh, an energizing effect from it. And of course it also kind of reveals that perhaps some of our appetites for certain kinds of effects are larger than others. Emil happens to really be into products that are stimulating, focus-enhancing, um, giving a lot of cognitive clarity. I find some stimulating supplements to be a little bit over-the-top, edgy, um, almost stressful, but oh boy, I can really stack a lot of calming supplements and feel the effects and enjoy the effects um, in more of a, a chilled-out type of way. Yes, so we, we differ a lot and that's something with maybe if you do have this sedating response towards Sibelius then it could be a great thing to take at night. That being said, I think lemon balm overall people seem to respond to that with a bit of a um, overall calming, almost sedating effects profile. So that would probably be a safe choice. Another good uh, choice and a very powerful choice would actually just be to take the coriander extract with the sleep support. Yes. But now let's save some of those other interesting stacks for a little bit later. Yes. Okay, going back into the mold. I into the mold. So those are the GABAergic effects and the complexity of the GABAergic effects there and how it's nice and selective and produces the exact effects profile that we want. Now we can kind of go back a little bit more towards the NMDA effects and the um, voltage-gated calcium effects that's really good for relaxing your muscles a little bit and that also probably plays a role in the digestive effects. So if you look at your intestinal system, a lot of the smooth muscles in your intestines, in your, um, in your anus to be honest too, uh, where you need to pass your excrement, sometimes those muscles are tightened up for certain reasons and that can cause issues, digestive issues. and if you take something that relaxes those muscles, you can have um, a relief of some of these issues. And interestingly enough, I see a lot of um, uh, references to coriander being used for flatulence. So this probably has something to do with relaxing some of those smooth muscle cells. So maybe you just have one big flatulence <laughs> and then you're clear for a little while. I'm not exactly sure how that effect would necessarily go into play, but it does seem like for some of those digestive issues, coriander can be very beneficial and it's likely because of some of this calcium uh, 
voltage-gated calcium channel blocker effect. This is interesting now that you're talking about flatulence, but also just the sort of muscle relaxation effects of coriander, because I was doing a bit of research about some traditional uses of coriander in the past, and one of the um, things that's mentioned is it's being used um, during the menstrual cycle. And uh, some of the reasons were not as specific, but I'm thinking if it's having this kind of physical relaxation effect, that makes a lot of sense for cramping. And it makes a lot of sense because a lot of uh, issues related to PMS can be digestive and can affect your, your flatulence or can affect you know, your bowel movements. And so by taking the coriander, it can be useful for those purposes, but also for cramps caused by your period. Absolutely. I hadn't really put all of those together, but I do think now that you're saying it like that, coriander would be very useful in that scenario. And I personally really like things that have this calcium channel blocker effect because it helps with pain that's a little bit more um, like neurological based. Um, so if I'm having kind of like a neck pain and that's maybe causing some um, headachey type things, uh, coriander seems to work quite well as does cava, which also has this calcium channel blocker effect. And it seems to have a nice physically relaxing effect, like almost a slight muscle relaxing effect without like this sedation accompaniment. Uh, I have the same with cava. Uh, so. This is a really interesting effects profile, and I think it helps explain some of the traditional uses, as Erica mentioned too. And then, of course, you have the NMDA effect, which then is also good for pain processing. Um, so that would also, with your menstruation example, it would work well there too, because it would help block some of the uh, neurological uh, pain processing there. But another interesting thing is linalol is quite good at balancing oxidation and oxidation also plays quite a big role in pain processing so there you would have some benefits too and that also kind of comes back to the the food preservation side where it's antimicrobial but it's also can inhibit oxidation and of course uh, oxidation within food is a big thing so if for example you've ever sliced an apple and left it out and it turns brown that's because of oxidation now you put some lemon juice on it and some of the vitamin C in there and the lower pH prevents some of this oxidation and now your apple doesn't turn brown again. Think of that happening in your body a little bit too. Not that your body is turning brown because of oxidation, but oxidation is not the greatest thing always to have. Sometimes it can be beneficial in certain scenarios, but we want to try and limit that a little bit. So having the linalool content also acting as a good oxidation regulating compound in addition to some of these pain modulating effects and um, calming effects and muscle relaxing effects is really nice. And this also comes back with the NMDA blockade effect. This is oftentimes very neuroprotective. So this would be good for enhancing just the general health of our brains, especially with the oxidation regulating effects because oxidation can be quite damaging to the brain too. Uh, and then excessive NMDA activity or glutamatergic activity can cause cells to get so excited that they end up dying, which is also not good. So blocking some of this NMDA, having this uh, oxidation regulating activity there makes it a very interesting neuroprotective agent too. I think that almost brings us 
to the end. I'm racking my brain if I can come up with any other effects. I think there are some mild inflammation balancing effects, but it's, it's not particularly strong there. So I wouldn't necessarily say that that's a huge benefit of it. Uh, really what we like to use it for and what our customers so far seem to like to use it for is simply its relaxing mood boosting effects and some of the pain management effects. And I think it is a fantastic supplement for that and not a whole lot of things come very close to it. This is also why when we first got the beta testing sample of it, we were blown away. Um, we didn't know what to expect. We thought, yeah, coriander, sure, it doesn't seem super fascinating, but the first time we tried it, we were convinced it really only took one dose. And I have to say, there aren't very many things where we take one dose of something and we go, yes, we want to order many, many kilos of this stuff, get it to us as quickly as possible. But with the coriander extract, that's how it went. And unfortunately, it did take a long time, especially because of um, the global pandemic, the supply chains were disrupted. And then with the war in Ukraine and some of the export issues between the EU and the US for a while. It took a really long time to get this extract. So we are extremely excited to have it now. We are extremely excited that uh, now we can share and talk about it, even though we've been having to basically keep it a secret for two years since we really wanted to shout it from the rooftops that this was our favorite. Um, and. I unfortunately don't have a bottle with me right now. We ran out right before we came to the Netherlands, so we will have to order some again. Yes, this uh, whole podcast is really making me miss it so much because it was one of my favorite supplements and I feel like we went through the bottle very fast, so it's time did. to get another one. <laughs> okay, so I think now we can get to more stacking then. Okay, so we started with some sleep stacks mm -hmm. telling you about the idea to combine lemon balm with the coriander extract, bacopa, and magnesium if you want to do some uh, standalone products. Or you could also try taking the supercritical coriander extract alongside sleep support, which would be another great option. Now, I was also remembering that when we did the Red Rishi podcast, we talked about the sort of very kind of subtle wash of physical relaxation and mindfulness that we felt from the red reishi extract. So I was thinking, because the coriander has a similar effect, but it's super powerful and calming, that let's say we put together a little bit of a yoga type stack, a stack that you want to take before um, doing some reflective writing, or maybe a creative project, or cooking something, um, a day where you have some time to relax and really be mindful with every little step and move that you're making um, as a way to kind of center your mind. Coriander and red reishi seem like they would make a really wonderful combination. I think so too. And I actually think with that in mind and kind of the effects like yoga, cooking, creative work, I think that is a really good stack in and of itself because you get that very natural relaxing effect from reishi you get a nice physical relaxing effect from the coriander, but the reishi also has quite a powerful inflammation balancing effect. And so if you're experiencing some aches and pains, those would be great together. But if you wanted to add a little bit more lift, a little bit more mood lift, a little bit more energy, a little bit more creativity, 
I would really think that if you combined it with Cognance, yes, that would be perfect for a day like that. Absolutely, that's that's a really fun combination and idea. So I want to give those three a try. Now on the other side of the spectrum, using coriander as a way to kind of smooth the intense effects of some of our more stimulating supplements, um, we can revisit the combination I mentioned earlier, which is uh, Vignatex and coriander and yes. Uh, for me personally, I found the Vignatex to be like, here we go. Um, it was it was like foot on the gas in terms of stimulation and focus and um, sort of the speed of my thoughts. But then once I took the coriander, that kind of uh, smoothed out some of the edges, boosted my mood a little bit, felt physically relaxing, so I could enjoy the stimulation of Vignatex um, a little bit more and focus on the cognitive benefits more than the intensity of the sensation. Definitely. I, I do really like that stack too. I've now tried it a few times too. It's really nice, especially if you maybe want to like relax but be physically stimulated. So for example, a perfect scenario for me would be I've, I've done a lot of work, I want to relax and I want to read a book, but I'm also a little bit tired, but I'm also a little bit on edge from such a busy week or something like that, then having something that calms me down like coriander is great, but it can also make it really likely that I just fall asleep with my book. So then having something like Vignatex where I can be more engaged, more focused, but also nice and calm because of the coriander, that really allows me to get immersed in a book and experience the, the amazing worlds that an author can create within a book. So a stack like that would be really beneficial there. Or more if I wake up and I'm feeling a little bit edgy, uh, so I want to smooth it out with coriander, but I also need more focus, then I can imagine a stack of Fignatex and coriander in the morning before maybe an important meeting would kind of put me into this very interesting flow state. And I have actually experienced that once now with uh, coriander. I took it before. Uh, a meeting we had and it was very nice. I was able to navigate through the meeting a lot more fluidly than I would have that day because I woke up not feeling 100% uh, mentally, a little bit tired, a little bit run down, a little bit edgy. So this really helped invigorate me but also kept me nice and calm. So I think that's a great stack. And I think with that stack too, kind of going back to the stack we mentioned earlier with the Rishi, the Cognance and the Coriander, I think just um, Cognance and the Coriander is a really excellent stack and I've actually heard this being mentioned a few times now. Okay, so I think th that really covers it for more of the, the mental, like relaxing, actually, yeah, the, the Lemon Balm and the Coriander would be a really nice relaxing one and I, one of my favorite stacks actually with the Coriander is Saffron two capsules of the saffron and the coriander and I pretty much feel invincible when it comes to anything like stressful coming my way. It really helps boost my mood and boost my confidence and relaxation. I really like these two together and it also makes sense because saffron also is an NMDA antagonist. So you're getting two NMDA antagonists together. You're getting this more serotonergic effect and dopaminergic effect from the saffron together with the coriander effects. I find that that's maybe one of my favorite stacks. 
And I also really like saffron with cognance, and I have tried coriander cognance and saffron together, and that is quite a spectacular combination too. That's definitely more of one where uh, I want to relax and have a bit of an interesting experience. So keep that one in mind for, for purposes like that. So we've talked about calming effects and stack ideas, and then we also talked about um, Vignatex as a stimulating stack idea. I'm curious, uh, before we get into talking about stacks for pain management, to ask, does Subroxy have a particularly suitable profile in terms of its like pharmacokinetics or pharmacodynamics as a combination with the coriander extract as well? Yeah, yes and no. Uh, I guess that would be a little bit more similar to Vignatex. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, and it seems like for some other people, and it might just be because we have generally higher uh, monoamine oxidase B levels, which are being knocked down. So that could be part of it. But I do think that Subroxy is a little more subtle. It's very effective. It's a little more subtle. And I don't necessarily think the combination of coriander and subroxy would be very um, synergistic since subroxy actually already contains some compounds uh, that act on the GABAergic system. And part of the reason why Aroxalin A also works to a certain degree for enhancing kind of that mental clarity focus is because it blocks one of the specific GABAergic subunits. So. You can definitely stack them together, um, but it's not something that has necessarily popped into my head to try, uh, mostly because for me and for a lot of people, Subraxi is already so smooth. But that being said, not always, but recently for Erica, Subraxi has been a little bit edgy for you, so you've taken it out of your stack. So I would be interested to see what would happen when you take coriander and subroxy together. Yes, definitely. And the reason why I asked is because I know that you take subroxy on a daily basis or almost daily basis. A daily basis for two years now. Okay. So you've also um, then been taking subroxy with the coriander when you're taking coriander um, yes. as an everyday thing. So I was curious if the GABAergic effects of subroxy would have kind of a nice pair um, similar to how you were describing uh, coriander with lemon balm in terms of the GABAergic effects. But I would also be curious for myself too, because recently I found that subroxy is just a little bit too stimulating. Um, and it's not that it's edgy, but it just puts me in an excited state that I don't really want on a daily basis. Um, granted, I also have been more into coffee lately and I've been drinking at least two cups of coffee a day. So that combined with subroxy, combined with exciting life events and the holidays, sometimes it just puts me over the edge a little bit. So I've been cooling it in terms of subroxy, but I am curious to try subroxy and coriander together and report back and let you know if it feels like a nice uh, calming combination. Yeah, I'm curious what you find with that combination. And yeah, I guess inadvertently I have taken that combination but I've never really combined them on purpose, so I've never necessarily paid attention to it. But I guess they do go well together, because I have taken them together. All right, so for pain management, because we are more on that NMDA side, on the voltage-gated calcium channel side, 
we're blocking some of that neurological pain, I think a, a great stack would be Agmatine. Agmatine also works on those pathways and can kind of enhance the effectiveness of something like coriander, so that would be a great stack. Ooh, another thing I just thought of is uh, another one of these kind of intensely, um, oh, there's a very specific word I'm looking for now, I'm having trouble. Um, hmm, the cognance is wearing off, just kidding. Evocative, yes, that's the word. An evocative supplement in terms of how it tastes and smells, combining coriander with refl, because refl is one of the most powerful, uh, physically relaxing supplements I've taken and is really, really useful for pain management, I have found for um, sore muscles and ligaments and tendons. Yeah, that would definitely be a great stack. That beta caryophyllene also has some cannabinoid activities. So that will also help act on more of the neurological pathways of pain, but beta-caryophyllene also has great inflammation regulating effects, so those would definitely be good. And in a similar vein, and I know you also really like this one, the supercritical holy basil, the supercritical holy basil also has beta-caryophyllene in it, so it's quite similar in that sense to refl, and it has eugenol in it, which also has a good pain management effect. So yes. I think either refl or holy basil would go great together with coriander or we could just go we could go this far and call it the holy trinity of pain <laughs> management supplements well we might have be... to wait a little bit for that if we are going on the holy route because we might have something interesting coming a whole, out soon. a holier product okay a holier okay product. all right so for now uh 1.0 holy trinity is uh the supercritical holy basil, the supercritical coriander, and refl. Um, and refl is also a particular flavor that Emil likes to describe as um, tasting a bit like a, an Orthodox church would smell, um, or frankincense, uh, yes. something in that way. I would describe it as an old church in Europe somewhere where they are burning large amounts of frankincense and myrrh and maybe in there you might find some hint for upcoming things but that's all i'll say okay so this is a fun idea for a combination for a pain management stack um, before we move on from that remind me what uh, botanical or plant is creating refl so a, a bunch of different plants can create it one of them is black pepper uh, another is cloves ah okay and holy basil. Okay. So there are definitely a few plants that create, actually hemp also creates it. Uh, so there's fairly high levels of beta caryophyllene in certain hemp cultivars. Um, hops will also create certain amounts of beta caryophyllene because hops are also in the Cannabisaceae family. So the same family hemp is a part of. So that also makes sense. Um, and Actually, now that I think about it, maybe some of the more spicy hops, like I think Saz hops are a little bit more spicy uh, and earthy. Some of that might be coming a little bit from a, a higher beta caryophyllene content. I'd be curious to look into that. Um, but yeah, that, so black pepper mostly or uh, cloves. Those okay. are the main two sources. Okay, gotcha. A nice I believe ours is from black pepper. Okay, and a very powerful combination in terms of flavor. Yes. So now let's get back into maybe some more of these, um, oh, I don't want to say like focused or direct. Well, let, but let's do one more pain management. Yes, yeah, so I was I thinking think PEA. 
PA would be great, and that would be similar in that beta carrier filing, cannabinoidy type thing, and all of those would go well with Agmentine too. But a really interesting stack would actually also be Matrine mm. and Coriander. Matrine has some really interesting neurological effects on pain too, and it would stack great with the neurological effects of uh, coriander. And I think the coriander might help smooth out some of the effects of the matrine when you take a slightly higher dose. So when I take 100 milligrams of matrine, it feels quite nice, but sometimes I want a little bit more of a boost for the, the pain uh, effects. But when I take 200 milligrams, it's honestly a little bit too much and I feel like in a bit of a weird dreamlike state. And I've heard a few other people say that, but maybe something like coriander could help smooth that effect out a little bit more. Or now that I think about it, maybe it could even enhance it a little bit because they're both working on NMDA. So maybe disregard that unless maybe you're looking for a very dreamy stack, maybe Matrine. Uh, in a higher dose and coriander could go well together. But I do think that just a normal dose, the 100 milligrams of matrine and coriander would be a very nice stack to take together if you are experiencing some pain. Very nice. Are there any other kind of categories of stack ideas that we want to put together at this point? I think we've gone fairly in depth. I think maybe the last kind of stack, if we think of digestive health, um, because coriander does seem to have an effect there. Um, I know apigenin has a similar effect there and also has a calming effect, so that could be an interesting one to take together with coriander for more digestive stuff. Oh, and actually when we were talking about foods, I stopped at turmeric and I knew I was going to say one other one and I was actually going to say ginger. Oh, ginger yeah. is another one that we use very extensively throughout food, but is an excellent supplement. Both of us actually take it every day. It's one of my favorites. Um, and ginger is really good for digestive health. So I think ginger and coriander together would be a fantastic digestive culinary stack. That's awesome. And I love the idea of taking ginger and coriander together because that immediately has me thinking about curry Mm -hmm. which usually contains, well, I mean... Of it contains coriander. Yes, there's so <laughs> many different kinds of curry, but when I think of curry, I think coriander, ginger, curcumin, coconut, um, and pepper, and so many of these different... Um, curry leaf. ...herbs, spices that we've been talking about. So very wise in terms of flavor combinations and health benefits and as a supplement stack. Yes. Cool. Yeah, I guess if you want to do the curry stack. Yeah, the you curry could take stack. Mariva phytosome, coriander, ginger, and uh, the beta caryophyllene ruffle. Because I love then it. you have the black pepper, you have the curcumin, turmeric, you have the gin. Oh, you could add some ginger there too. Yeah. And let's say you want to add some mushrooms into your curry, then you could take the red reishi. Yes. Um, or the cordyceps <laughs> if you wanted to. Although that's not a very tasty mushroom, so then I would go for the shiitake. Which okay. We have a shiitake extract, and that's also one of my favorite culinary mushrooms. Nice. I dig it. So we had the Holy Trinity stack and now the curry stack. So I feel like we're, we're maybe uncovering an underserved area of stack development, which is just inspired by things that are happening out in the world, maybe more culturally or agriculturally or politically or uh, I don't know, any of these kinds of terms. It's a fun thing to think about and a fun thing to try out too. And a fun thing potentially to end this podcast on. Absolutely. 
So thank you so much for listening. Um, this has been a really fun episode of In Search of Insight, telling you about supercritical CO2 coriander extract, as well as the new products that have been released um, in the last month and the history of use behind uh, coriander as a food source, as a supplement, um, as a way for us to benefit our mood, our relaxation, um, our mental health, and perhaps our sleep as well. And if you're curious about listening to more episodes of In Search of Insight, you can go to our YouTube channel. Be sure to subscribe and give us thumbs up on the podcast you listen to, as well as following along with everything that's happening at Nootropics Depot on Reddit. And our Reddit is r slash Nootropics Depot. You can listen to this podcast on all of your favorite streaming platforms and find more information about stack ideas and new products in the YouTube description as well as in comments too. And we ask that you share it with your friends, um, that you come back and listen again, and that you really get into the conversations and um, ask us questions and don't ever stop sending your ideas over because you never know how important that new research study or that new herb or plant or botanical that you're curious about may be for this whole community of nootropics geeks like us. So without further ado, we'll end this month's podcast episode and we will see you next time. And by the time you listen to this, it will be Happy New Year 2023. So with that, we will say goodbye. See ya.